Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for adopting us as your children, being so patient, so kind with us. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, leads us to ongoing change. And so this morning, uh, would you connect us to your kind, gentle, and loving heart um, as it's expressed uh, in all of Scripture through the person of Jesus. It all points to him. And Holy Spirit, I believe that uh, you uh, want us to see and savor Jesus not just this morning in our hour meeting together, but uh, as we leave this place that we would be equipped uh, equipped to engage the world where you've placed us and where you've called us, all of us, to serve. So help us as we look into your word and open our eyes and make our hearts soft uh, to the good news that life with God is available now because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Amen. So I, I really enjoy movies that keep you guessing until the very, very end. Uh, Interstellar, The Illusionist, uh, and more. These, in these movies, things are not as they appear. So they, they kind of like build the suspense all the way until the end, when in the end, the fullness of the context, like the, if it's a magic trick, you get to see like behind the scenes, like it's not magic, it's just an illusion, it's a trick. You see the fuller context of what's been happening all along, but you haven't seen it until the end. And uh, I don't know what you think about, or maybe if you don't think about what you think about when you come to church, uh, maybe you've just come for so long that you know, you don't even think about it. it. It is a good habit to have, but we should be careful to get dulled, not to not get dulled with our context, uh, the life that God has given us, where he's placed us. Um, because where we are, it matters. And, and what we do here, it matters. So uh, who God is, who we are, what sin is, how sin affects us, what can be done, about sin. These are all incredibly important things. Uh, they're incredibly practical things to your context, your everyday life. And it matters. It matters to your well-being, not just when you die, but how you live right now. Y your life and those around you kind of hang in the balance. And so, so that's what we're going to talk about today is context and the context of Jesus's ministry. We have to be well-connected to our context to know how to live. And before we, before we read and jump into our passage today, I want to remind you, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen this theme emerge out of Matthew's Gospel, which is fulfillment. That, that one word kind of encompasses Matthew's theme as he tells of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and what Matthew's saying is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has done and said he would do. And so Jesus is the point of human history. And you might say, okay, uh, so what? 
That's a great question to ask when you're reading the Bible. So what? That means that he's the point of your life. And, and you need to learn, we all need to learn how to see that in light of our context. So he, Jesus, is the point of your job that you're going to go back to tomorrow. If you're single, he's the point of your singleness. Your, your singleness, this season, exists for him, relationship with him. If you're married, he's the point of your marriage. Not, not making your spouse happy, not getting by, not changing them so that they're like how you want it. G- living in relationship with Jesus is the point of that. He's the point of your pleasure, the point of your pain. Your whole life exists for him. And he wants you to know him through it all. And again, we should be honest with ourselves as we're engaging with scriptural truth. It doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always look that way. And it's okay to struggle with that. But it's very important to know how you're struggling. What direction are you struggling? Because without a fixed point of reference, like Jesus is the point of of all of life, you're not going to know which way you're going. You're just going to go as it seems good to you. And that's a very dangerous way to go. So we need to learn to see things as they really are. Uh, one, One illustration of the importance of context is I have a friend who works in a hospital and he was telling me about the machines that doctors and surgeons use and the engineers who maintain the machines that these doctors use. Uh, these engineers need all sorts of training, like double the amount of training of normal engineers, about eight years. And so, and they need all that training because these machines need to be so well calibrated. If they're off just a little bit, the doctors don't see what's actually there, right? That, they're seeing something that's not there and and it's incredibly dangerous to the patient. And so in order to see our life and our world as it is, we need to know our context. Like I said, this is what our passage today is about. As as Matthew overviews the context of Jesus's ministry. So I'm going to read from Matthew 4 beginning in verse 12 and going through the end of the chapter. Uh, It'll be on the screen. You're welcome to follow along on your Bible or or app. So, Matthew 4.12. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, Jesus returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill, emphasis, right? To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
news about Jesus spread all over Syria and people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And that's the end of Matthew 4. So today we're going to see the context of Jesus' ministry. And I put a map up here. I tried to call out some of the important stuff because the stuff is so small. So up north is Capernaum and that body of water is the Sea of Galilee. So this is where Jesus kind of ministry home base was. Uh, Down to the south, you'll see Judea, uh, Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem where Jesus was born. And all these different colors uh, are are indicating, you see see all the different colors, uh, they're indicating different government. So, you know, what what was the lay of the land politically? uh, Who was governing where? So, at the end of the, our passage, you saw everybody from Syria way up north to the Decapolis to across the Jordan River, which kind of runs right between Samaria and the Decapolis. It runs uh, north and south there. Uh, this is the context of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew's giving us more than just uh, physical geography of the context. Um, he quotes the Old Testament. And anytime Matthew quotes the Old Testament, He's like he's pulling out a highlighter to, to make his point. He, he's, he's, he's bringing it to light for us. And he quotes Matthew 9, where it says, a people living in darkness have seen a great light. See, he's given us the spiritual context too. And in order to understand Matthew 9, we've just got to back up. We've got to back up and remember the story. This is a big, grand story, the Bible is, all about Jesus and, and I'm just going to start today with Moses, who God used to rescue his people out of slavery. Just hang on that word, or put that word in your back burner. Moses, God used to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. Joshua, God used to deliver his people into this promised land, a land that God had promised them. Then after Joshua died, they went through this, this toilet period in their history because they were just spiraling downward, downward, downward at the judges. And everybody did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. Now file that word back in your memory. There was no king in Israel. So everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The last of the judges, Samuel, the people came to him and said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations and have a king. And Samuel knew this was a bad idea. But God said to Samuel, it's not you, Samuel, that they've rejected, but me as their king. That's what God had said. So we fast forward through the kings. Saul was the people choice, the people's choice. David was God's choice. Solomon, David's son, did well for himself. Solomon did. But ultimately, Solomon's son split the kingdom, Israel into the north, which is why I kind of drew that red line. That was me. Uh, that red line, yeah, that's my artistic skills. So uh, just so you get an idea, like Judea, Judah was the south kingdom. Everybody else called Israel the north kingdom. And uh, Solomon's sons, he split the kingdom. Uh, and they, just, they were bad kings. Bad kings in the north. And just slightly better bad kings in the south. So what happened was the north fell to Assyria first in 722, according to God's 
promised purposes that he'd established in the Mosaic law. Like God warned his people, if look, if you live in sin and keep living in sin and don't repent and don't come, like I'm just going to give you over. And, and, and captivity is the cursiest curse of all the curses. And it happened to Judah, happened to the South Kingdom too in 586. So there was partial, like you read in Ezra and Nehemiah at the end of the Old Testament, there was this partial restoration, like uh, God's people did get to return to Jerusalem and they did get to rebuild the temple and they did get to rebuild the walls, but everybody knew that it just wasn't the, the same. It wasn't full restoration, but here's what I want you to hear today. There was no recorded restoration for the north. They just kind of integrated in, lost identity as God's people. I mean, at, 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 when we pick up the New Testament, you, you've probably heard of the story, in, the story of the Good Samaritan and how, how Samaritans were viewed. Uh, the, the word that came to mind for me was shma, and I don't know if that's a real word, but it's an acronym. It's uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it actually stands for shaking my head. <laughs> you know, when, when you write LOL in a text message, no one says lol. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've seen SMH and I've thought shma. Uh, but it, it sounds like shaking my head. It sounds like disapproval. And that's exactly how the Samaritans, the people in the north, were viewed by the people in the south who thought God restored us. And, you know, like we still have some dignity to hold on to because we're back in our homeland. But here, here's what I read this in preparation for this uh, talk is uh, a commentator said, even an impeccably Jewish Galilean. So what that means is, even if you were a really, really good Jew, but you were from the north, okay? In first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner, the northerner was a foreigner, as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London, or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us, which makes sense. Because if you remember when Peter uh, denied Jesus outside of the trial, one of the things that they said is, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And so there's this, there's this division. You know, there's this discrimination. And, and Jesus opens his ministry According to Matthew, he opens his ministry in the lost northern kingdom. Jesus is fulfilling the promise of restoration after exile because even though the south was kind of that partially restored, restored enough so that they can reclaim their privileged status as God's people in their minds, the north was a lost cause. The north was looked at and felt like a lost cause. So Samaritans, shma. Galileans, shma. Shaking their head in disappointment in disapproval. But God had promised. God had promised that one day he would restore all of them. It would restore the north and the south. So here's Isaiah 9, which is what Matthew quoted in Matthew 4. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. He's talking about the north. For in earlier times, the Lord treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. When, like, this is the north. Uh, he treated them with contempt because of their sin. But later on, he'll make them glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, which is that lake that we saw, Galilee of the Gentiles, which means Galilee of the nations. 
That word Gentile means nations. So all these different people living around this body of water, God will make them glorious. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so I'm just trying to make it clear. Matthew is using Isaiah 9 to connect Jesus's time and place, Jesus's context with the hopelessness of the northern kingdom. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, man, I don't even know why I came. I'm a lost cause. You are not. If you come and you compare your insides to other people's outsides, which we're all tempted to do in some way, and you think, I just never measure up. Uh, there is hope for you, not in, not in being like the other people, but in becoming like Jesus. Jesus is coming to free those who had never been restored from slavery out of exile. The people who had rejected God as their king are now being freed by the God that they had rejected. And so Jesus, man, he brings those in utter ruin like the northern kingdom. He brings them, he offers ultimate restoration to those in utter ruin. And of course it's because his death pays the punishment, his death on the cross, his resurrected life gives us the power and eventually his return will eliminate the presence of sin in our world. And it matters because we live in a world filled with darkness. We live in a world that apart from Christ is hopeless. And we need to be aware of how bad our problem is. And the Bible is an incredibly helpful way to consistently remember that. On our own, we are not good. We live in darkness. Our lives, not just looking from this room out into the world and, oh yeah, the world is such a terrible place. No, it's us. And any way that we're not corrupted by the evil of, the dark, of darkness and Satan's lies, that's God's kind activity to us. There is no one in this room, there's no one in the world who is good enough to earn God's love. But also, there's no one beyond the power of God's restoring love. One of the ways that darkness manifests itself, just very practically, is self-deception. <laughs> we tend to think of ourselves as better than we actually are. And, and one of the ways we do this is we're all prone to take credit and to give blame. <laughs> and even if we don't do this with our words, we often do it in our minds and in our hearts. And we're deceived when we say things like, yes, I am a sinner. Um, I know that. But if we don't regularly confess sin, if we don't repent of it, um, we're deceived as to what it means to, to be a sinner saved by grace. It, it's more than just claiming, yeah, that's true of me, but we have to deal with it when we sin. Or you could say, of course I'm not perfect. And then in your mind be thinking, but I'm not as bad as this other person. Or I've got reasons for why I do what I do. I, my anger, my, my hurry, my worry, it's all justified. And in so doing, we marginalize our failures and we magnify the shortcomings of others. We have to learn how to live in our context, which is darkness. We, we tend to be self-deceived. 
And we have to have the light of Christ illuminate what's true of us, what's true of the world around us. There's, there's no one good enough to earn God's love. Also, there's no one beyond the power of God's restoring love. So I want you to hear, there's, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. But we're all going to do something. We're all going to do something with this offer. Charles Spurgeon once said, the same sun, so you know the sun, you know, brings us light and everything. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance, not just once, but a life of ongoing repentance where we change and we grow, that same gospel hardens other people in their sin. So how you respond to sin, that shows if the gospel is shaping your heart well or is it softening, is it hardening you? So there's nothing, nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. But I want you to know everything you do impacts your love for God. Not his love for you, not that direction. But what we do, it does shape our hearts. And so I just invite you to live openly and honestly with a few other people. Make, make repentance your life direction. Make it the, just a pattern of your living. Um, and then you'll find, I believe you'll find that making disciples and doing the things that Jesus told us to do, it won't become like another thing that you have to do. You'll start doing it and you might not even know that it's happening because your consistent orientation is one of turning back to God. So restoration in the midst of darkness, restoration is brought about in, in this story or in this uh, passage by the coming of the King Jesus. Um, and so th then Matthew gives us an overview of what did Jesus's ministry look like? Verses 23 and 24, he said, Jesus went preaching, teaching, and healing. He was ushering in the kingdom uh, through both word and deed. And I want to zoom in on the message that Jesus, the, the gospel according to Jesus was the same as the gospel according to John the Baptist. And I'd highly encourage you to, to memorize this. Uh, repent, for the kingdom of heavens is at hand. I think everyone can do that, can, can memorize that. And it's saying the kingdom of God, having God as your king, the same God that was denied kingship by his people in the Old Testament, it's available because the king has come. The king is at hand. And so, in Matthew, we're going to see this phrase, and we actually are going to sing it today. We're, we're singing this song where it says, uh, uh, King of the heavens, right? King of the heavens and king of my soul. When Matthew says heavens in Jewish thought, heavens referred to three things. First is the air, the atmosphere around us. And so if you ever hear someone say, yeah, I pray, but I don't think it, I don't think it made it past the ceiling. Um, that's okay, because God is actually under the ceiling too. So that's the first heavens. The second heaven is outer space. The heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist is referring to the stars and the moon, the sun. The third heaven is where God resides, his, his throne, where, where as Jesus prayed, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So when, when, when Matthew says, and, and your translation probably says heaven without the S, 
But in the Greek, it's, it's, it's plural throughout the New Testament. Heavens. So the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It's, it's like all of the above. The whole creation order has begun to be restored. The takeover is at hand. And you're invited in. Just repent. <laughs> repent and trust him as your king. So here's what Matthew is emphasizing with that. Life with God is available in his power and in his presence. And if you want to know what the third heaven is like, you know, there's a fascination with that and appropriately so in some ways. Uh, If you want to know what heaven is like, you can follow Jesus right now. You can follow the king and you'll have a good idea what his kingdom is like. So, because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, his kingdom is as close as your next breath, if you want it to be. So let's review a little. Uh, We've covered two points. Uh, Sin is pervasive, and the king has come. The kingdom is available. And so, how should we sinners, and we're all sinners, how should we live? And we'll see this. We'll see how we should live in the midst of Jesus' audience. Uh, Jesus called, in this passage, he called four men to be disciples. And that's a very Bible-y word, isn't it? Have you ever heard disciple outside of the church context? But you've probably heard these words. Apprentice, intern, student. Those are good modern-day equivalents. That's as good as we can get in our modern day our context today. So quite simply, you see it here. Being Jesus' apprentice is following him and pursuing others. He said, come follow me, when he called these men, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus, pursuing others. And when you do this, you can actually do what Jesus said in the Great Commission. You can teach others to obey everything that I've commanded you. Not because you have it totally figured out, but through repentance, you've learned uh, what to do and what not to do. And there, just so you know, in case you've heard, because I've, I've heard this before, that there's different categories of Christians, it's not in the Bible. Disciple, Christian, like, if, it, it, they're interchangeable. And so all nations, all people have the same problem, sin, and now Jesus is carrying out his ministry through us. He gives us his power and his presence as we make disciples. That's how Matthew ends his book. And there's also, there's more than disciples in this passage. It ends with the crowd. There's these people just hanging around Jesus, interested in Jesus, and they're from all over the place. And Jesus doesn't turn them away. But I also want you to see, just read the Gospels for yourself. He never makes the crowds his goal. He cares for them deeply. And what he consistently does to the crowds is he calls them into discipleship. John 6 is a great example. The crowds, like they had just been fed. uh, Jesus had fed the multitude with the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. And they just just wanted some more. You know, like, Jesus, give us more. And Jesus is like, okay, I, I want to give you more of myself is a paraphrase of a very long chapter. Jesus says, I want to give you more of myself. Then they said, ah, we're really hoping for some bread. 
He was offering them the bread that came from heaven. And so Jesus' relationship with the crowd, I just want you to see, he invites the crowds into discipleship and that's what we're called to do as well. So if you're here and maybe you, I, you kind of identify with the crowds. You're like, I've been coming to church a long time and I've even done some things in the church. And you know, like, but I'm not so sure that I've ever you know, like committed to learn and, and learn how to live life as Jesus would, you know, committed to be a disciple. Like you're welcome and you're welcome to process and investigate and ask questions uh, and you know, delay the decision as long as you want, but just know that we're inviting you into discipleship. Um, Jesus is inviting you into discipleship. And uh, yeah, in closing, here, here's the context of Jesus' ministry and it's not just about his ministry back then, but I believe this is a context of our lives and our ministry. Sin Sin is pervasive. We live in a world of darkness, but it has been and it is being dealt with by King Jesus. And we can learn how to live from him. So there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. He loves you because he loves you. But everything that you do, it impacts your love for God. So let's, let's learn to live lives of discipleship to Jesus together. Jesus, we come to you now and acknowledge that you're the, the rabbi, you're the teacher, you are the Lord, the king. Um, and so our discipleship depends on your leadership. Our being students depends on you being our teacher. So we just want to stop and acknowledge the darkness, the sin of our own lives. And we never want to leave it there because you came announcing good news. That we turn away from ourselves. We turn to you. We change our mind. You help us change our mind. You empower us to change our mind and change our lives. And believe that your presence and your power is available. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And that's not obvious to us, God, but I believe that's true. Help us to live there. And as we do, we trust that uh, you will call us to call others into discipleship, into this, this life in your kingdom together.